Let me pray for us, and we will get started. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for the chance that we have to be together and to be studying your word. I pray that uh, we would gain benefit, that we would see uh, growth tonight, sanctification, uh, by learning more from you. I pray that we would uh, incline our hearts and our minds towards you during this time, and you be honored by what we share here. God, we love you, and we thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you will open up to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13, we're going we're gonna to pick up um, kind of where we left off. Again, we're kind of skipping around, skipping some of the interludes, but we want to get to the main... Um, we want to get to the main judges and at least cover that um, in our time. So we'll be looking at Samson tonight, um, the first part of Samson. Then we'll see if we get to share the second part of Samson later. Um, but uh, I, I have to admit, growing up, um, I always thought, when I thought about Samson, I thought like superhero, right? Like in my mind, he was, he was all positive. He was... He was all good stuff. He was this awesome guy, pretty much because when I was younger, all I really cared about was the fact that he could take on a lion, right? And that he could, uh, at least in my mind, he could beat up uh, a thousand guys at a time. Um, it wasn't until, you know, I got a little older that I started to realize not, not so much, right? That there are some, some brief cool moments about uh, Samson, but, but in large part, he's, he's, he's out of control, um, he, he, he lets his anger and his passions kind of rule who he is. In fact, I, I, saw, uh, I saw the Avengers movie pretty recently, and one of, the, one of the thoughts I had is the Hulk and Samson, like those, those go together pretty well, that they, they try to do some good things, but a lot of bad things happen, right, when they get out of control. And so uh, we're going to walk through these couple of chapters pretty quickly. So just if you want, as we, as we talk, I'm just going to, kind of narrate through and follow along, and then we'll, we'll pull a couple lessons um, that we can see in these chapters from the, at the end. So chapter 13, primarily there for uh, our backdrop, we, we catch up with Israel, and they are not surprisingly back in idolatry. They are back to doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God, again, as he has, the, the cycle continues, and God again responds with, discipline with punishment and he hands them over to be oppressed during this time by the philistines so they're a nation that's uh, actually kind of west so for the first time we've been dealing a lot with the east they're west and a little bit south um, and then during this time they kind of come in and intermingle they occupy um, different parts of judah now in this in this cycle this time around there's a little bit of a break in the pattern in that um, after they've been handed over the Philistines, there's no reference to them crying out to God. Um, where previously, every time they kind of got in trouble, eventually they would break down and they would say, God, please, please deliver us. There, there would be some moment of desperate cry out. Probably not, not very authentic, um, really more about the consequences than, than actually loving the Lord, but at least there was something. Here, we, we don't see that. Um, that. That they're so hopeless at this point that they've forgotten God entirely, that they've probably given up hope. And it's in that hopelessness that we find uh, a, a smaller illustration of, of what's going on in the nation in general. We find Samson's parents. 
and they, they don't have children. As far as we can tell, they're unable to have children, and so they're, they're struggling with that. They're um, disheartened and discouraged because of that fact, and they've um, quite possibly given up. And so that's the state that we find them. That's where they are when an angel of the Lord comes. Right, a similar story that we've heard before and that we will hear again in later books. Um, and he appears to Samson's mother and gives her some good news. Gives her a message that she's going to bear a son. Um, and, then, and then he gives her some specific instructions. Primarily, she was to devote her son to the service of the Lord by having him take uh, the Nazarite vow, or at least adhering to uh, the qualifications of the Nazarite vow. <clears throat> now, um, this is someone who, as you, as you look back in, in Deuteronomy 6, it'll kind of give a description of this vow. This is somebody who voluntarily takes a vow for a season of time in their life to devote themselves to the Lord, right? They, they make some sacrifices, and they set aside this time that they can commit themselves to the things of the Lord. Probably not that dissimilar to taking a season of fasting. Um, it's, it's something along those lines, and it has three primary requirements. Uh, the first is that you don't, you don't drink alcohol, but it goes further than that. You actually don't have wine. You don't eat grapes. You don't have raisins. You, anything that would come from the grapevine, you don't have. You don't partake in those things. Um, the second is that you don't cut your hair. You let it grow long. You have to let it continue to grow. And then the third is that you can't touch, but, but even further than that, you can't even go near a dead, a dead body, be it animal, human, what, whatever it may be. You can't go near um, something that is dead and certainly not touch something that is dead. This, this was a very serious vow that, that people took. Um, this is not like, this is not like Lent, right, where, where sometimes people take a, take Lent, they give up chocolate or something, and then they make about 40 concessions during the next 40 days, right? This is, this is not like that. This is something that would be, um, extremely serious, that even if you accidentally did one of these things, if you accidentally somehow broke the vow without your knowledge or it kind of happened to you, there was a, there was a major process a major hassle that you had to go through in order to remain in the vow, to start your vow um, back over. And so this vow is placed on Samson. There are two, two things that are interesting about uh, his vow in particular. First is that he didn't make it, right? The, the conversation, the commitment to the vow happens before he's even born. So he's, he, unlike the, the normal progression of how this worked, he doesn't he doesn't voluntarily sign up for this. Um, he signed up um, by his mother. And then secondly, um, it was for his entire life, right? It wasn't just for a set period of time, for a season to set aside and devote to the Lord. Um, chapter 6 makes it seem like normally this is only done for a season, and then you would kind of go through a ceremony that would usher you back into normal life where you weren't under the vow anymore. But for him, it's right now and until for, for the entirety of his life. <clears throat> so chapter 13 ends um, with them understanding all these things and the parents realize what has just happened. Uh, and they kind of they respond. They realize that they've just, basically they've seen the Lord and they do what Gideon did when, when he ran into the angel of the Lord, they kind of panic because we've seen the Lord, now we're going to die, right? They're, they're, they're kind of uh, 
uncomfortable with that, but of course they, they talk it through and they have this reason that comes to mind that if we were going to die, he wouldn't have come and given us a mission and things to do in the future. So fortunately, we're, we're not going to die. And of course, the, the promise comes true. They, they give birth to a son named Samson, um, and he begins to grow, and God begins to grow him, um, gift him, and bless him in such a way to be used for God's purposes. So up until this point, Samson is seen as special, right? He, he's a unique gift from God. He's going to be gifted in ways of, of leadership and obviously strength that we'll see later on um, to be set aside for God's purpose. In fact, in a, in a way that is similar um, to Christ, right? Both Augustine and Luther refer to Samson as a, as a Christ-like figure, um, of, of course, he, he's a bad example of a Savior, right? He, he does it poorly, uh, where Jesus is the perfect example of, of what a Savior is. But the bar is set pretty high. Expectations are high for Samson because of, because of the way his, his coming about, his birth has come about. And so I, I would imagine that his parents are fairly excited about what their son's going to do, right? They're proud from the get-go because he is going to be used for big things for God. And that expectation is probably what caused them to be really surprised in chapter 14 when he has is, he is grown up, he's become a young man, and it opens up with Samson demanding that his parents get a, Philist a Philistine woman to make for his wife, to become his wife. And so here we see, we see the first example of Samson's decision-making process, what goes through his mind, why he does what he does. He does what he does because his emotions and his lust rule over everything else, right? This is not a leadership decision. This is not a good decision. This is him letting his emotions drive, every, his passions and his wants and his desires drive over everything else. And in that, he, he rejects two factors here. First, he, he rejects his parents' desires, Right? They have a conversation with him in which they say, don't, don't you want to find an Israelite woman to marry? Don't you want to find someone who is approved by God for you to, to marry? Um, which, is, which is, of course, what he's supposed to be doing, but he, he disregards that entirely. He says, no, I want what I want. He doesn't care about his parents' requests. He wants this woman, and he demands it. He demands that she be made his wife. In that, he also rejects God's command. Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7 prohibits Israelites from marrying Philistines, Canaanites, and others because it would lead to them bringing in their false gods. Right? It's, not a, it's not a matter of ethnicity or race. It's, they would bring in their idolatrous, their false gods, and here he doesn't care. He doesn't care that God has commanded him not to do this. He's in direct violation of what God had asked of him. And so, verse, verse 4, look at, look at verse 4 in particular. And it, and it does something kind of interesting here that the narrator lets us kind of know what's going on uh, behind the scenes, that, that God was going to use this marriage against the Philistines. So what that means is that what Samson was going to do for evil, for himself, for selfish desires, God was going to use for his purposes. 
He was going to take something bad and he was going to, and to use it for his good and perfect will. This does not mean that what Samson did was good. Right? And this is, a, this is an important distinction to make that um, the ends for the Christian, the ends don't justify the means. So just because God was going to use this does not mean that Samson was, was right. Um, just because God is in control and he can make good come from sinful circumstances, it, sin is still sin. It is always sin and it always displeases God. Uh, I, I remember watching a, a video series a while back that um, a pastor put out, and, and it was a series in which different pastors would basically sit down across from each other at a table, and they would, they would debate all kinds of different things, all kinds of different topics. So theology, um, methodology, you know, how to, how to do ministry, what was a good idea, what was a bad idea. I mean, really anything you can think of in the realm of ministry, they would get two guys that you know, most likely disagreed, and they would have them debate the topic. And one of those topics had, had one of these pastors, and he was defending an action that his church had done. And it was uh, that, on an, that on an Easter Sunday, that the church band from, from the stage on an Easter Sunday morning played the song Highway to Hell. And so he's, he's defending this idea. If you don't know that song, I mean, it's, in all honesty, it's a horrific song. It's, a, it's an ignorant song that makes hell out to be a place to be celebrated, uh, where you're going to have fun with all your friends, you know, a, a place that you really want. And, and really, the, the singer is, is celebrating the idea of hell and, and being there. And so in the debate, he keeps defending what they did. And his primary defense is, there was a guy who came up to me after the service, and he said, I heard that song, I realized that was me, and that I was going to hell, I need to repent and follow Christ. And so therefore, it was right to play that song. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. That just because God did something good, it doesn't justify sin. Some of the most horrific sins that we can think of have been a catalyst to people repenting and becoming a believer. Of course, we know that doesn't make them right. It just means God is that powerful that he can work in spite of our sinfulness, that he can do good in spite of what we do. And so that's what he's going to do in Samson's life. So as we, as we continue the story, they, they head down and they're going to establish this woman as Samson's wife. And if you're not paying attention, like uh, along the way, like it's no big deal, there are these quick two verses in which, oh, by the way, a lion attacks and he destroys it with his bare hands, right? This is one of those times when we have to be really careful about reading the Bible in a monotone cadence, and we're not really paying attention to what we're reading, because if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss the coolest thing that Samson does, that he defeats this lion with his bare hands. Um, sometimes I think it's helpful if you read, I said this on Sunday, if you read the Bible, sometimes read it like you're reading it to a child, Right, because it kind of forces you to think about the context and to make the voices and to, and to get excited. You know, the author, as he's writing this, he's excited when he, when he writes, because there's action taking place, um, and it allows us to do that. So he kills this lion, and then several days later, he's going to come back, 
and he's going to find that honey is being made there, which is n not a normal thing to happen in the carcass of a lion. And he's, he's going to scoop uh, the honey out of it, and he's going to eat some. Not only is that really gross, it's, it's also really wrong, right? The, the narrator tells us something that, that not only is it wrong, he knows it's wrong because what does he do? He keeps it from his parents. If that naturally happened to any one of us, we, I would tell everyone. I would tell as many people as I could find that I had just killed a lion and then I took some honey, honey from his body, right? I would tell people. He knew that his parents would see this as wrong and that it was sinful, right? He, he wasn't wrong to defend himself from, from a lion. What else was he supposed to do, right? That, that's not where the sin, uh, that's not where the sin lied, but the, the vow requires that if you come into contact with anything dead, you're going to have to go through this, you have to go to Jerusalem, you have to go through this eight-day ritual. Well, what was he thinking about? He was thinking about his marriage. He's, he's ready to get married. He's ready to go after this lady. He doesn't have time to do all the things that it would take for him to keep his Nazarite vow. And so instead, he, he shows really no regard for God whatsoever, kind of doubles down on his sin and returns to the body and even eats something that came from it. And then he's blatant in his sin enough to include his parents in it. That he, that he almost, almost cruelly takes it to his parents, what would, have, what would have broken their hearts to see, and, and brings them in and feeds the honey to them without telling them where it came from. I, I believe that second act in particular, I mean, it starts with the first um, when he doesn't respond well after killing the lion, but that second act in particular shows that not only is he just too lazy to, to go through the ceremony and to go through everything in order to be faithful, that second encounter shows that he doesn't, he really honestly doesn't even care. He, he doesn't care to keep this vow. He doesn't care to be faithful. See, this is, and I think this is the difference between someone who is struggling with sin, right, who's actually fighting, who, who's resisting sin, and, and someone who embraces it and just pursues it and, and goes after it, right? His, his mind is on a woman. He cannot be bothered with things that pull him away from it, even if it's the Lord and being faithful to God. And so he, he ignores it, keeps it a secret, and he presses on with the wedding where, he, where it says he prepares a feast in the house of um, his bride's family. By feast, really what's meant here um, is a, is a seven-day party. It's a seven-day, and in all honesty, it's a seven-day drinking party when it is to be assumed that he was taking place. So an, another, excuse me, taking part. So another Nazarite, part of the Nazarite vow, just chucked to the side, really without, without any thought. And remember, so he, so he does this feast, and they're, they're getting ready for the wedding. Remember that during this time, the, the Israelites and the Philistines, they're not all of the sudden on good terms, right? They're, they're partying together, but there's, there's still bound to be tension. There's still oppression, there's still fighting, um, there's still, still killing going on. So when they see Samson, they know, they probably have some idea of who he is. Right? They have some idea of his, of his strength. Um, I, I'm sure the lion is probably not the only time he has exercised that strength. They know who he is, and they're nervous. And so it says they, they bring 30 companions to be around him. Right? What that meant was 
that was not 30 buddies, right, to come and hang out with him. What it was most likely is 30 bodyguards. It was 30 guys to come and make sure that this was not some plan for him to attack, you know, Philistines, that this wasn't some secret, uh, he, he wasn't being a secret spy and, and trying to attack them. And so they, they basically like, hang around this guy and ma- make sure he's not a problem, right? Make sure he doesn't go um, astray. But as we see, he doesn't really seem to care. He doesn't seem to be threatened. In fact, uh, he decides they're going to play a game. And he gives, them, uh, he gives them a riddle that if they figure it out within the seven days, they each get a piece of, or excuse me, they each get a collection of fine clothing. If they don't get it right, each one of them has to give him back a piece of fine clothing. And he, he gives the riddle, but it's not, it's not really fair, right? It's, it's not a real riddle. Um, he doesn't ask them something about general knowledge. He asks, he asks something about specific knowledge. They weren't there, nor, as we can tell, was anyone there um, when he killed a lion, when he went back to it for honey. There's, there's no way they could have known what this was. Um, and so what do they do in response? Well, they cheat too. And in all reality, for them to cheat is kind of understandable because he had cheated. Um, not in the manner in which they cheat, but the fact that they, they got a little creative with how they were going to find um, this answer. And so what do they do? They go to his wife, a Philistine, right? One of them. Um, and they, they threaten her. Basically, you, you tell us, you find out the answer to this riddle or we're going to kill you and your family. She, she's got a gun to her head um, at this point. And so she, she starts in. And she, she fights and she fights and she argues and she, she cries and she says, you don't really love me, right? She, she pulls out all of these stops and he holds out. He doesn't give her the answer until the last day, right? He finally gives in and he tells her the answer. And so she passes it along and they come and they bring that answer to Samson. Well, Samson's not a fool. He knows that they can't have guessed that. They can't have figured it out. There's only one person he's told at this point, so he knows where it comes from. And so he, he's furious. He accuses them of cheating. Um, he uses an analogy that no man should ever use for his wife, ever, in any circumstance, whether you're in Samson's time or not. Don't use that. I'll let you read it for yourself, but he should not have used that analogy. And then he realizes that he's got to pay that debt. He owes each of these guys some clothes, some fine clothing. And so, like a normal person, he reaches in his pocket and he pays for all the clothes. No, that's not what he does, right? He, he heads to a town that's about 20 miles away and he murders 30 Philistines and steals their clothes in order to give it to the men of the riddle, the men who had gotten it right. Essentially, he responds like a child. In, in emotion, he responds like a child, throwing a tantrum because things didn't go his way. That, that he cheated and somebody cheated back against him. This was not an act that was on behalf of God. In, in his mind, from his perspective, his motives were out of anger. They were out of vengeance, right? They, they were purely selfish rage. Again, he's allowing his emotions to drive everything that he does. He forgets that his actions are going to have consequences, and that's what happens. As you, as you read further, um, it sets off a series of, of back and forth escalating violence that results in the death 
uh, and the loss of his wife, um, the, the turning of his own people. They, they turn on him and give him up. But all along, in, in spite of his foolishness, God is still working. God is still using and executing his plan, working to make him the judge of Israel, using him to deliver them from the oppressors. And so that's, that's where we'll stop tonight in, in the story. And I want to point out just, just a couple of lessons, two lessons that we learn from Samson in, in this part of the story. And the first one is that our lusts and our passions make very poor masters. They make very poor masters. Samson was controlled by his passions. Right at the forefront of the story, by his lust. He simply sees a woman from this foreign place and abandons everything in order to have her. Right? That's not logical. That's not rational. That's pure, selfish passion. And imagine for a second that you're his parents. Right? And, and, and some of you may have experienced, walked through something, something in, in the line of this that you've been given this great gift in a child and you have these, these high hopes and you know, the, a messenger of God has come and told you what he's going to do, that he's going to be used for his purposes, that he's going to be blessed and, and he's going to carry out God's will. You think you have one picture and one idea of how that's going to play out. And then, he, and then he comes home and he wants to marry a pagan. He wants to marry an idol worshiper. That, that would crush you, right? That would crush you to hear something and, and to see him persist that, that he's going to abandon, essentially he's going to abandon his faith to pursue his lust. So once again, we see someone doing something in Scripture that logically makes, makes really no sense whatsoever. It's because his passions have taken over. He has exchanged discipline and reason for passion. It means nothing to him that his family is hurt. He no longer cares about his faith. He's been told, he's been instructed not to pursue women who might lead him to idolatry, and he doesn't care. All because he follows his passions. Jeremiah 17.9 warns us of, of this potential pitfall. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, we're not to be a people that are ruled by our emotions. That would, that would inevitably lead us to a selfish lifestyle that would result, as we've seen over and over and over again in Judges, it would result in disaster. It would result in death. Instead, we're to be ruled by our faith in the Lord. Now, what I'm not saying is that emotions are bad. Right? I'm not here to say that emotions in and of themselves are, are bad. Emotions used appropriately are gifts from God that, that help us. Right? When, but when we make emotions, what I'm worried about is making emotions our master. That when this happens, it, it can lead us to bad places. And it leads us to two in particular that I think of. The, the first is that it, the most obvious is that it causes us to pursue sinful and destructive conclusions. The, 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 that it draws us to sinful things. Right? Emotions can be so strong, um, give us so much desire for whatever the object of that emotion is that, that we're drawn in. And, and we don't see, like, we're like a bug to a zapper, right? That we don't, 
we see it and we're drawn to it and it's appealing to us and by the time we realize what it really is it's too late right proverbs 7 describes that phenomenon better than anything better than anything i've ever seen right the young man pursues the woman thinking he is headed for good until what until he realizes that he is headed for the slaughter he's headed for death and so that's that's the obvious first problem with letting emotions be our master and the, and the second um, it's a little bit harder to to determine and to see but it can equally draw us away from the lord that, that that's when we begin to pursue emotions themselves right that this is where our faith becomes more of a game about feeling god rather than than having god himself right we, we begin to pursue situations we pursue songs even even worship and sermons and passages not because they bring us closer to the Lord, but because they make us feel positive emotions. And in that, we, we begin to worship the gift and not the giver. Right? John chapter 6, we see Jesus interacting with the crowd who has essentially chased him back down. So he, he feeds the 5,000, does this great miracle. And so the crowd continues to chase him. But what do they ask him about? They don't ask him for more teaching. They don't, they don't ask him good questions they ask about bread they're hungry again and what they what they care about is bread and he tries to explain two and three times over he tries to explain no no, no. i'm i'm the bread that makes you never hungry again right and, and then he even he gets more and more direct as he goes along he tries to explain to them like the value in me is not that i can miraculously turn a couple of loaves and some fish into a meal for all of us it's that I can satisfy spiritual hunger, right? And they never, they never get it. They never understand because they care more about the gifts than the giver. And the same can happen to us when we, when we worship emotions. And so with that lesson, I, I would encourage us to evaluate our heart, to ask what is driving our actions and our faith. Are we pursuing just what our, whatever our heart desires because it feels good? Or are we letting our passions be so loud that it drowns out our faith, that it drowns out our wisdom and knowledge that God has given us. I mean, the question has to be, would we worship God if that emotion was not there? Those are the kind of diagnostic questions we have to ask ourselves to, to evaluate. Have we let emotion become our master? And then the second lesson that, and the last lesson that we see in this passage is that there's a, there's a difference between struggling with sin and just embracing it and just being okay with it a, a common phrase that you hear in christian circles is you know that someone struggles with a sin and th that's good that's good language to use when when dealing with our sin that's an accurate description but only if you're actually struggling with the sin right Ru russell moore wrote an article about this recently in which um, he, he talks about this idea that we use this kind of hyper-spiritual language sometimes just to make it okay that we do that sin. As long as we say we're struggling with it, it's kind of okay that we let it, we let it hide out and we let it continue on. But the question has to be, are we actually struggling? Are you actually fighting against that sin, making effort to, to do more than just lip service to, to being against that sin? See, what Samson portrays for us is someone who is not struggling with his sin. He's not. He's given over to it. Right? He, he, he makes no effort to continue his vow. He, he abandons any effort whatsoever 
And we, we see this throughout, but I think, I think the most obvious example of it is, is when, he, when he takes that honey and he takes it to his parents, right? I, I don't know if that's just a very high level of intentional rebellion or, or if he just doesn't think that the vow matters and doesn't think that it has any, any value, but one way or another, he, he doesn't care, right? You see it again at the wedding feast, right? What is the opposite of not drinking wine? Getting drunk, right? That's the opposite of not drinking. A seven-day straight day drinking fest is the opposite of not partaking in wine. He's clearly not concerned at all. There is no struggle here. And so before we, and before we say, well, I'm not in that camp. I don't, I don't go on seven-day you know, drinking parties. I, I want us to think about our sin, right? And, and think, about, think about that one Right, that when you think of your sin, that, that one that comes to mind. The one that you have struggled with your whole life. Whatever it may be. And ask yourself, are you struggling with it? Are you fighting with it? Or is it just the one that's, that seems to always be there? When, when the Bible talks about how we should respond to sin, it uses words like die, struggle, fight, kill. It uses strong, violent language. Romans 8.13 for you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you were to honestly sit down and list out all the efforts that you had made in order to rid yourself of that sin, would, we, would, would you agree that you're killing sin? Or would it look like you had given up and that you had thrown in the towel? Struggling against sin is meant to be that, that violent picture. It's painful. It requires sacrifice, not only of the sin, but even of the things that remind you of the sin, right? Even of the things that bring you close to the sin. And so for us, uh, the other thing I, I want us to consider is look at those sins that, that seemingly have had some victory in our life. Remember the gospel. Remember its power over them and use that as motive, as encouragement to truly fight against sin and pray that god would give you a heart and effort against that sin to truly kill it to put it to death and so those are the those are the two things that i want us to draw from samson is um, not allowing our passions our desires our emotions to become our master and and secondly be sure that we are struggling against sin that we are fighting and, and not sitting back and let it letting it continue Let's pray, and then we'll spend some time doing prayer requests. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the message that Samson, Samson's story brings us. We thank you that you are willing to use sinners for your glory and for your will. God, I pray that you would bring conviction in our hearts tonight where we have, where we have allowed our emotions, allowed our passions, and our sinful desires to drive what we do and who we are. I pray that you would give us the strength to repent and that we would look to the cross as the source of that strength, that we would understand what it means to fight and to struggle and to kill sin. I pray that we would do so not, not for self-victory, not for pride, but that we might have more of you, that we might know you more. And we thank you for the very power that we have over sin given to us by your Son on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.